0: Well, everybody in our world today is looking for peace. You see it in our 24-hour news cycles. You see it in the books that are sold in our bookstores. Everybody's looking for peace. Social movements throughout the centuries, social movements have, have risen and fallen all on their ability to grant our desires for peace. For instance, the socialist anthem La Internationale, it's gone under a number of revisions, but it says, this is the year of our struggle, and after this, there will be no more struggle, only peace. Well, that year has not come. The wars have continued. Socialism promised peace, but ultimately failed, as will every human movement. But we know a different kind of peace. We know a conflict that is more personal and more subjective. Stress and anxiety, worry about what will happen, gnawing hunger about what we should do when big decisions are in front of us. Graham Greene in his famous novel, The Heart of the Matter, The main character, he writes this about the main character, for he dreamed of peace by day and night. Once in sleep, it had appeared to him as the great glowing shoulder of the moon, heaving across his window like an iceberg, arctic and destructive in the moment before the world was struck. And by day, he tried to win a few moments of its company. Crouched under the rusting handcuffs in the locked office, reading the reports from substations, peace seemed to him the most beautiful word in the language. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. O Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. And in the mass he pressed his fingers against his eyes to keep the tears of longing in. Do you know that longing for peace this morning? How is it that you get that peace? How do you get that peace that in possessing it, you seem to possess everything? This is at the heart of what David writes in Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is all about peace. The big idea of the psalm is essentially this. If you're taking notes, this would be my sermon in a sentence. That when we depend wholly on God and His promises, we find peace. When we depend on God and rest on His promises, we find peace. With that in mind, listen to the reading of God's word, Psalm chapter 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. I'll be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? But know, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And there are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Oh, but you, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. And in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth on our hearts by His grace, that we would walk in it to His glory. What does God want us to be like? And how can we be that way? That's really what the Psalms are all about. The Psalms give us categories and vocabulary for understanding how it is that we are to honor God, and worship God, and exalt God, and endure for His glory through this life and into the next, when this life is anything but a bed of roses, when there is suffering and trials and fear, when there is a lack of peace around us, the Psalms give us words and categories, a framework for understanding how to walk faithfully in these days. In preparing for his baptism, Augustine, he was in his early 30s at the time, baptized at 33 years old. He said that in his preparation to be baptized he read through the psalms over and over and over again and he says in them he learned to pray he wept through them he rejoiced in them he sung from them and he says in them i learned to pray oh friend listen if you have attempted to follow christ and you've attempted to pray but you have never read through the psalms then you are neglecting a necessary resource that god has for you in his word This is why we try to pray from the Psalms when we do our prayers of praise in our gatherings. I love the prayer that that Laura prayed this morning. It's just praying God's Word back to Him. But but every emotion, every feeling, every word to articulate it in such a way that, that gives God glory and trust in Him has been articulated in the Psalms, and that is what God has given us. What great grace he's given us in his psalms. That if you read in the psalms from the beginning to the end, what you find are believers who are not concerned with putting on a face. They're not concerned with always saying the right Christian-y thing. In fact, they're often saying things that would cause other believers to blush. Oh, <gasps> can't believe they said that. That's what the psalms are full of. And it just, it melts away. All of this kind of outward fake religiosity and it gets down to the very heart of what it is that we long for and trust in and rely on. And it seeks to transform us and to draw us close to the God who is righteous and mighty and powerful and gracious and merciful and kind. He gives us words for all of our sorrows, for all of our trials, for all of our rejoicing, for all of our worship. He has given us an infinite vocabulary to articulate every emotion that we would face in the Christian life in the Psalms. Oh, you should bathe yourself in the Psalms if you want to learn how to pray just as Augustine did, and just as saints through the centuries have as well. And I pray that that's what we would do this morning as we look at Psalm chapter 4. We're going to see essentially three things, three movements through this psalm. You see in verse 1, David is praying to God. Then in verses 2 through 5, he turns around, turns his face away from God, and he addresses, see that at the beginning of verse 2, he addresses men. We'll see who those men are in just a moment. And then he turns his attention again in verses 6 through 8 back to God, praying not only on behalf of the congregation, but praying again for himself, praising God. And so you can see these three movements by whom it is that David is addressing. And here's what we're going to see in verse 1. We're going to see David call to God. It's our first point in the sermon this morning, call to God. Then in verses 2 through 5, we're going to see our second point, confront your circumstances. Confront your circumstances. And then we'll see our final point in verses 6 through 8, enjoy God and rest in Him was a natural progression that we see in the psalm one of the things that makes psalm 4 so amazing is that we get to see david's sanctification at play right in front of us we get to see him progress spiritually from the beginning in verse 1 all the way to verse 8 oh in verse 1 he's going to start out crying like a baby but in verse 8 he's going to be sleeping like a baby how does he get there We're going to see him crying out, freaking out, in distress in one. And then he's going to say in verse 8, Oh, in peace I lie down and I sleep and I am safe. How does he get there? Well, I want to suggest that the way that David gets there is the same way that you and I get there. That as you face trials and tribulations as you face difficult relationships and circumstances in your life first call to God second confront your circumstances third enjoy God and rest in him that's the progress the progression that we're going to see in Psalm 4 let's consider our first point in chapter 1 call to God answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. It might seem odd to you when you look at the beginning of verse 1 that David is pleading to God to answer him when he calls. Some of you may be thinking, isn't that what God does? Isn't that kind of like God's job is to hear us and answer us when we call? Oh, but listen, David does not presume upon God the way that we are too often tempted to presume upon God. God is not obligated to hear our prayers simply by virtue of creation. He created us. He is God. We are not. We cry to Him, pray to Him. He is therefore obligated to hear us. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, Jesus teaches that God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. So David does not presume upon the kindness of God. Because he understands two things. We see this, two qualities in David's prayer. The number one, David's prayer is a humble prayer. But secondly, we're going to see that it is an honest prayer. At first, it is a humble prayer. Consider David's humility in this prayer, verse 1. He says, answer me when I call. He's not presuming on God. Why? Because he says, you are the God of my righteousness. Some of your translations say, my righteous God. They're both essentially saying the same thing. That God is in and of himself altogether different than we are. He's not a bigger, better version than us. He is set apart from us, better than us Holier than us. He is altogether different. He is in and of himself righteous. He needs nothing outside of himself to be righteous. Therefore, he is the source of righteousness. That's why David calls him the God of my righteousness. The reason that God can be his righteousness is because God is a righteous God, it is who he is. He is inexhaustibly, indestructibly righteous. It means that he always keeps his word. He is not like men. It means that he is utterly holy. That his moral majesty is without spot. He is pure. That he is unchanging. He has always been this way. He is this way and he will always be this way. And because he is unchanging and because he is infinite, we know that his righteousness does not wane and come and go and wax and wane the way that perhaps ours might. His righteousness is steadfast and firm. And when sinners stand before a righteous God, we have no plea. So David understands in humility that this is a righteous God I am going to approach him not on the basis of how I'm feeling in my present circumstances. How is he feeling? Oh, he's distressed. I'm not going to approach God in the way that I perceive him acting in the middle of my difficult circumstances. I'm going to approach God in the way that he has revealed himself to be and he has revealed himself as the righteous one. He is the righteous God of Israel. I can approach him as no other God, would you hear my prayer? I cannot presume upon you because I know that I am a sinner and you are righteous. So he first confesses God's righteousness. He doesn't presume upon God's kindness. But then look at what he does in the second part of verse 1. He appeals to God's grace. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He understands that if God is going to be able to meet his needs, then God must be righteous. But if God is going to hear his needs, God must be gracious. And God is both. That he is the righteous God who is transcendent and separate and apart from that which he has created. And he is the gracious God that condescends to his people. Oh, friend, the righteousness and the grace of God seem all throughout the Old Testament as irreconcilable ideas? How is it that God can be both righteous and yet at the same time gracious? How can he be one who who hates sin and yet forgives sin? How can he be one who cannot even dwell in the midst of sin and yet dwells in the midst of his people? How is that possible? And the answer is because all of the promises that God has made find their yes and amen in Christ. In Romans 3, we see the righteousness of God, the very righteousness that David is proclaiming here, the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ, who on the cross became both the just and the justifier of the one who would trust in him, that he is both just, that is righteous, and he is loving. That in Christ, the righteousness and the grace of God meet, and at the cross, they kiss, and they are perfect friends. And so David doesn't presume. He doesn't operate on how he's feeling. He doesn't operate on what he's experiencing. He's going to approach God on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be. And he says, I am going to approach God as one who is righteous. He is altogether righteous. And yet, if he is going to hear my prayer, he must be gracious. And that's exactly what we see. Friends, troubles in this life will either drive you from God or will drive you to God. If you're a Christian here, then troubles in this life serve to wean you off of this world, trusting in yourself, trusting in riches, trusting in your own wisdom, and to bring you, by God's grace, back to God in a deeper, more hopeful reliance on him. Perhaps, though, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you consider trials, you consider suffering in your own life. And those have been the very things that have driven you away from God. You've said, how is it that a loving God could ever allow such a thing? Well, friend, I would encourage you to consider closely as we work through Psalm 4, this God who is both righteous and yet loving. Who both allows suffering into the lives of this world and people and yet uses that suffering for his perfect ends. And so David calls on God. But then look at what he does in verses 2 through 5. Right after he calls on God, he confronts his circumstances. We're going to see in verse 2, David confronts his enemies. And then in verse 3, we're going to see David correct his enemies. And then in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see David command his enemies. He's going to confront them correct them and then he's going to command them look at what he says in verse two here's david confronting his enemies oh man how long shall my honor be turned to shame how long will you love vain words and seek after lies the old preacher chrysostom the golden toned one he said that if i had one sermon to preach for the rest of my life, one sermon to preach and then die, this would be it. Uh, he would preach from Psalm 4, verse 2. How long will my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after life? The honor that David is talking about there in verse 2 is the honor that is due to David as a ruler. Everyone knew that Samuel had anointed David as king. You can read more about that in 1 Samuel 16. Perhaps you might take 15 minutes this afternoon to do that. And so David isn't the one that chose this honor. God chose him. And so this was David's honor, God's choosing him and anointing him. And they had turned it to shame with, look at this, in verse 2, vain words and lies. They were slandering him, and they're doing all of this in the midst of what seems to be trials in the kingdom. Nobody really knows. Psalm 4 isn't clear on what is the source of the distress that, that David is facing. Some scholars believe that verse 4 or chapter, or, sorry, Psalm 4 should be connected with Psalm 3, and that it's just an ongoing meditation in Psalm, meditating on the circumstances that he is facing with Absalom, his son. In which case, Absalom, his son, the one who should be most loving of him, most loyal to him, has proven to be now his greatest enemy. The one who should be guarding him, promoting and protecting him, has now set himself up as the one who is doing injustice to him. Perhaps that's the case. We don't know. Or perhaps, according to verse 6 and 7, it might be that they're in the midst of a famine. That there's not a whole lot of wine, there's not a whole lot of grain, and so David has become, as any leader would in lean seasons, public enemy number one. He's become the source of of slander. He's become the 24-hour news cycle in Israel, is making sure that everybody knows how unfit he is as a leader of how unworthy he is to sit on the throne on which he sits, on that he can't be trusted, on how you shouldn't look to him to lead us, to guide us, to speak to us. They've been loving vain words and they've been seeking after lies. Well, by slandering God's anointed king, they are blaspheming God himself. So you can see at the end of verse 2, that word selah means to rest. And the idea is, is that as these stringed instruments are playing, this would be where you would have a short musical interlude. The idea would be that you need to stop for just a minute and you need to consider your ways before we move on. So David confronts his enemies. But then in verse 3, look at what he does. He corrects his enemies. He moves from confronting them in their sin to correcting them in their sin. He says, I want you to know two things. I want you to know, first of all, that God chose me, and I want you to know, second of all, that God hears me. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. God chose me. And then he said, the Lord hears me when I call to him. God hears me. Why does he tell them at the beginning of verse 3, God chose me? Why do they need to know that? That verb that you see there, to set apart, is only used in one other place in the Old Testament. And it's used as a verb to distinguish Israel from Egypt. It is the act of God to distinguish the one from the other. That Israel was the people whom God had chosen and would redeem. Egypt would be the people whom God has judged. For their actions against his people. Well here David by using this language is essentially saying God has set himself, set me apart for himself in the same way that he set Israel apart from himself from Egypt. And you had better turn because your opposition to me will get you judged just like Egypt was judged. That you are aligning yourself against the one whom God has chosen. But he says, not only has God chosen me, verse 3, God also hears me. He says, the Lord hears when I call to him. You may think that because the rivers have run dry and the, the storehouses are lean with grain, that God has shut off that fountain and closed his ears to me. Oh no, but you need to know, God hears me. It's kind of like The kid on the school playground when he's facing bullies. And the bullies are rallying around him, pompous and arrogant in their attitudes. And they're going to pound him to a pulp. And he calls and his big brother, who's home from the military, steps up behind him. Because he hears me. This is the kind of, of warning that David is issuing to his People, God has chosen me. He's on my side and he hears me. He has not drowned me out and he has not turned off the faucets of his favor. He is on my side. He hears me and he will come to my aid and you do not want to be found against him and his anointed. David's confidence in verse 2 to confront his enemies and in verse 3 to correct his enemies was all based, verse 1, on God answering when he calls. Verse 3, the Lord hearing him when he calls. That his God is a righteous God and yet is gracious to him. Proving his grace to him and choosing him and validating his grace to him by hearing him. He says, because God chose me, God hears me. I wonder if there might be a couple things that we could take away from these first handful of verses. Let me give you a couple. Some of you I know are facing circumstances, big decisions, difficult relationships, suffering and trials in your own life, even opposition. For the gospel's sake, perhaps like you see David facing here where men have come against the son of David, God's anointed, the king of kings, Christ himself. And as you stand with Christ, they have align themselves against you, whatever it is, friend number one, look to God, then look to your circumstances. Look to God, then your circumstances. Oh, our temptation is to look to our circumstances first, to weigh all of our options, to come up with a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C, and then to come up with backup plans for all of those plans before we ever stop and pray before we ever stop and acknowledge that even in the midst of my greatest suffering, God is righteous. And that even in the midst of of opponents shouting down at me, God is gracious and he hears my call. That he can hear me even over the shouts of others. Friends, when we look to our circumstances before we look to God, we will inevitably attempt to address and confront those circumstances in our own wisdom, and we will make those circumstances infinitely worse than they currently are. Oh, you might find temporary relief, but the ongoing consequences of walking in your own wisdom and not according to the fear of the Lord will always bring back greater pain than the pain you're presently experiencing. And before you turn to confront your circumstances, look to God. Secondly, don't look to God, then look to your circumstances. Secondly, talk to God, then talk to your adversaries. There are some of you in here that need to have hard conversations with difficult people. People that you work with, family members, those who have wounded you, those who perhaps have committed injustice against you. And you need to have a hard conversation Before you talk to that person, you need to talk to God. You need to approach Him on the basis of His righteousness. And you need to see Him for who He is, as a God who is gracious to hear. And you need to get your own heart rightly oriented toward God in such a way that you would view that other person the way God views that other person. Not through the lenses of your bitterness. Not through the lenses of your hatred. Not through the lenses of your inconvenience. Not through the lenses of this person holding you back or whatever it may be. But rather through the lenses of how God himself views that person. That you need to talk to God before you talk to your adversaries. Spurgeon put it this way, Surely we should all speak more boldly to men if we had constant conversation with God. He who dares to face his maker will not tremble before the sons of men. And that's exactly right. There are some of you here who tremble at the idea of having certain conversations with certain difficult relationships because you are full of fear for how that turns out and you have not yet talked to God about that. There are some of you here who have not ever shared the gospel, or it's been a long time since you've shared the gospel with neighbors or co-workers or family members because you are fearful of how they're going to respond should they stand against you and the anointed king with whom you stand. Yet have you taken a moment to pray, to talk to God before you talk to men? Spurgeon is right. We would surely be much more bold in the way that we speak If we have constant conversation with God. That if we dare face our maker, the righteous God who is yet gracious to condescend to us. Then why would we ever fear and tremble before men? When the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And when the Lord hears us when we call. Do you believe that? So, David doesn't tremble before these men. However, he wants these men to tremble before God. I love this. You see David's heart for these men. His heart is not ultimately to put them in their place. His heart is not ultimately to exact vengeance on his own. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance looks really good on God, but it looks really bad on sinful men. What is David's heart for these men? More than anything, David longs for and is willing to enter into difficult circumstances with difficult relationships because he wants to see their repentance he wants to see them one to his side worshiping with him and look at what he says be angry that word translated in some of your in some of your bibles is tremble and that's probably a better translation tremble and don't sin ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. His primary concern is not his own vindication. His primary concern is their reconciliation to the one true and righteous God. That when you talk to God before you talk to men, and when you look to God before you look to men, all of a sudden your concerns become God-centered and not man-centered and me-centered. Your concerns become God's concerns and that's exactly what we see with David as he faces his enemies. He longs to win them to God because he knows that's their greatest good. Not to simply win the conversation or to win the argument. He wants to win them to God. So we've seen in verse 2, David confront them. We saw in verse 3, David correct them. And now in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see David command them. In verse 4, David's going to command his enemies to turn from sin. And he's going to give four aspects of repentance. Number one, he's going to say, you need to tremble. Be angry. Really, you see down at your bottom bottom of your Bible, if you have an ESV Bible, it has a little footnote that says, or to be agitated. The idea is to, to quake, to tremble. Given the idea of trusting in the Lord and offering right sacrifices, tremble makes more sense. He says, tremble. Because it's a terrifying thing to face God's judgment. It's a terrifying thing to stand against the king whom he's anointed and be found as his enemy. No, tremble. And secondly, he says, do not sin that those who tremble before God are eager to put sin to death, and yet those who love sin will not tremble before God. They're full of pride, and he says, tremble, do not sin, put that sin to death. How are they going to do it? Thirdly, ponder or literally speak to your own hearts. He says, you're going to have to get by yourself and you're going to have to get honest with God. And he says, well, how are you supposed to do that? We've got busy lives. We wake up in the morning. We're tending to politics. We're tending to our fields. We're tending to our households. When are we ever going to have time to do this, to have time to just meditate and speak to our own hearts, to ponder it in our own hearts? And he says, do it on your bed. Eventually, you're going to lay your head on your bed and you're not going to have anything left to do and you're going to be sitting there in the quiet and you need to ask yourself questions. You need to learn to speak to yourself. Have I loved God today by obeying his commands? Have I loved God by believing his promises? Oh, friends, listen, we are not to go through life thoughtlessly about our relationship with, to God and to His Word. To just flitter through life, only giving occasional thought and meditation to the state of our own life and our own soul. Here, in a very practical way, David says one way that you can do this every single day is when you lay your head on your pillow at night, turn off the screen, turn off the phone, put the book away, and think, and meditate, and ask yourself, and interrogate yourself according to God's word. Have you loved God by obeying his commands? Have you loved God by believing his promises? So he says you need to learn to speak to yourself on a regular basis. Get in your beds where it's all silent and speak, and yet as you speak, be silent. What does that mean? To speak and yet be silent, it means that they're to be still before God. He's saying, let God's law shut your mouth. No more justifying, no more minimizing, no more blame shifting, no more victimizing, no more any of this. You stand as a sinner before God who is wholly righteous, and the only means by which you are able to come to him in such a way that he would consider you a son or a daughter, much less hear your prayer, is if he condescends to you in his grace, and he's done so in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Have I trusted in him? Has all of my day and all of my thoughts and all of my mind and all of my heart and all of my soul relied on Christ today? Because the law is meant to show us a number of things. The law is meant to show us what is good. God is good, we are not. It's meant to show us what is wrong. Sin is the problem. That's our biggest problem. It's meant to show us what is needed. That is a substitute in our place to reconcile us to God. And so the law points us to provision that God has provided for lawbreakers and the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so David looks at this group. He looks at these men, these who have set themselves against his anointed king, and he says, you need to tremble before God. You need to turn from sin. Don't do it anymore. You need to speak God's word into your own hearts, and you need to be silent before him. No more justifying, no more minimizing, no more blame-shifting. None of that. The Bible says the whole world is shut up by the law of God. It's rendered silent. We have the little inner lawyer inside of us has to sit down because he has nothing left to say. Be silent before God. But then he says, don't just turn from sin David commands them, secondly in verse 5, to trust in the Lord. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. True repentance leads to true worshiper. David is concerned with winning to himself more worshipers. He understands that sin at its very heart is a problem of worship. It's a problem of not trusting, of not believing, of not relying And so he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, he doesn't say here what the bad sacrifices were. It could be that they offered unauthorized sacrifices to false gods. It could be that they were offering wrong sacrifices to the right God, like Nadab and Abihu. It may be that they were offering the right sacrifices to the right God, but with the wrong motives. They wanted to be seen and they were concerned only with outward appearances, but their heart was not contrite and they had no desire to love God and love others. Either way, he says, offer right sacrifices. Those right sacrifices are to remind them of the holiness of God and of the horror of sin and of their need to be forgiven of sin though a spot, through a spotless substitute dying in their place. And we've seen these right sacrifices today give way to a final sacrifice. That is the once and for all sacrifice of God's very own Son, the Passover Lamb, Christ Jesus, our Lord. No more sacrifices need to be offered. And yet the only way to come to God through Christ is to put your trust in the Lord. That it's not sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. It is sacrifice for the sake of Trembling before God and seeing our sin as it rightly is. And then beholding his marvelous, wonderful, infinite grace given to us through a mediator, through a substitute in our place, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he says, offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. Have a, heart, a right heart toward the Lord. I'm not interested in your outward actions I'm interested in your heart being transformed, in your fearing the Lord, in your trusting the Lord. And so David confronts here his circumstances. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, the same thing that David is calling his enemies to do is the same thing that Christ calls men everywhere to do, even today. In the Gospel of Mark, for instance, Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus traveling through all of Galilee saying, repent and believe in the Gospel. And that's exactly what David is saying here. Repent and believe in the good news of a God that reconciles enemies to himself by his grace. Friend, that God is still active reconciling sinners to himself. But it's not one that you're going to be able to this reconciliation, this right standing before God, this is not something that you're going to be able to accomplish by trusting in yourself. It's not something that you're going to be able to do by, by offering more sacrifices. Well, maybe if I start going to church more often, maybe if I write a slightly bigger check this week to the church, maybe if I, maybe if I show myself and, and volunteer my time for, I don't know, a nonprofit organization somewhere, oh, none of those sacrifices can win you back to God. Only God himself, by perfect payment being made by his son through his perfect life and his death on the cross in the place of sinners, can do what you can never do. Friend, what David is calling these enemies of his to do is what God is calling you to do. You, because of sin, are an enemy of God. You are in treasonous rebellion against the king who's been anointed, and he is calling you today to no longer trust in yourself, to trust in your own wisdom, to no longer love vain words and to seek after lies, but to trust in the Lord. Have you trusted in the Lord today? Have you trusted that Christ is sufficient to cover all of your sins and to win you back to a God who is capable of taking you from being an enemy and turning you into a friend? Well, I would encourage you today, friend, listen to me, turn from sin. Trust in the Lord. But then in the final verses, verses six through eight, David is gonna show what it looks like for those who do trust in the Lord. And he's gonna give really two things. So in verse five, David calls his enemies to true worship by trusting in the Lord. But in verses six through eight, David shows that trusting in the Lord leads ultimately to two things. In verses six and seven, Trusting in God leads to enjoying God. And then in verse 8, trusting in God leads to resting in God. He's concerned that these enemies, these opponents, would enjoy God as he enjoys God and rest in God as he rests in God. And so this is what he says. Look at verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us. O Lord. Here David is echoing the language of Aaron's priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. It's often the benediction in our own services. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Well, David is using the exact same language because he understands that to see God's face is to enjoy God's presence and to enjoy God's blessing. And that that's the greatest good that any human could long for, is the presence of God. That the light of his face would be upon them. But you and I, we often settle for so much less, don't we? Israel is looking to wheat and to wine. We look to money, to possessions, to clothes, to, to body image, to health, houses, vacations, and more. And yet, all of this combined and multiplied by a thousand cannot compare with the glory of seeing God's face. That is what David is saying. And we now know this truth that David is talking about better than David knew it, and better than Moses knew it in the time of Aaron and his sons. You see, David and Moses couldn't see God's face and live, but we... According to the New Testament, we have been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has caused it to shine in our hearts in a way that we now behold God's glory and dwell with God's glory and enjoy God's glory that David anticipated and longed to see but had not yet seen. We enjoy it now in Christ. What a glorious truth that in Christ God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That in Christ we are kept in the power of God and Christ will not lose one of us. That in the face of Christ we see the glory of God. That in Christ God's countenance toward us has been lifted and Christ has given us his peace. All of those blessings that Aaron Shouted down on the congregation in Numbers chapter 6 that David is repeating here in Psalm chapter 4 is fulfilled and find their yes and their amen in Christ. So the glory of God in Christ is more valuable, is more precious than anything that this world can offer. And so he says in verse 7 then, in distressing times, he doesn't turn to them and say, hey, you need to look at the bright side. Yeah, I know that the... The silos are a little lean and there's not a whole lot of wine. I know we're facing economic hardship. There's, I know that there are political enemies coming from the outside threatening to tear down the kingdom. I know there's all sorts of causes for distress and for a lack of peace and for totally freaking out. But I want you to consider all the good things that you have. I mean, consider the things that you have that some of those other nations don't have. Consider all the good things that God has given you. No, God, David does not tell them to look at the bright side. David says, look to God. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abounds. A heart that trusts God, sees that God is infinitely more good infinitely more satisfying, infinitely more full of joy than barns full of wheat and barrels full of wine. Do you believe that? I've had conversations with some who look back at broken relationships with their fathers or perhaps lost relationships with their fathers. One of my college roommates, his then-girlfriend, fiancé, now wife, she lost her father in the Oklahoma City bombing. And as you can imagine, given the nature of the circumstances, the insurance that he had as a government official paid for them really well. She'll never need anything. Pretty much for the rest of her life, the government is taking care of them. And yet, if you were to sit there and talk to her, despite all of the security that this earthly government has given her, despite the really nice, generous payouts from life insurance and such, despite the fact that she may not ever want financially or materially for anything for the rest of her life, do you know what she would say and has said? I would trade all of that to have one more day with my dad. I've had conversations with some of you you look back at broken relationships with your dad, dads who have left you, or perhaps dads that loved work more than they loved being at home, 80, 90, 100, 110 hours a week, and you never saw them, and you never spent time with them, and yet he would shower you with gifts. That was his way of making up for his absence, and yet as I've talked to some of you, you'd say, I'd give back every single one of those gifts just to be able to spend time with my dad. Why is that such an innate, natural way of thinking and feeling toward our earthly dads? And it's because we know, we know, I mean we know deep that it's the relationship that makes the gifts valuable in the first place no relationship, don't really care about the gifts. You're going to give me the gifts? Oh, give me the giver. Do you believe that God is better than his gifts? If every single one of us would say that about our relationship with our earthly fathers, oh, I would trade all of it in to have, to have time with my dad, to have quality time with him to be able to have one more day with him i would give all of the money and all of the gifts and all of that back why do we think the exact opposite about god give me the gifts but not the giver when we who are evil give our own sons good gifts how much more our father in heaven will give us good gifts as a testimony that he is the father of lights in whom there is no shadow or change, that every good gift comes from him, not as an in and in itself, so that we might be drawn more and more and more to the giver. The gifts mean nothing apart from giver. Do you believe that? That's what David is saying. Empty vats, who cares? No grain, doesn't matter. Why? We've got the giver. And he's better than everything. That you have put more joy in my heart than they have in their grain and their wine. God is better than his gifts. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, God has given you the greatest thing, that is himself. You can have everything in this world taken away from you. You can have every penny in your bank account. You can have your own children. You can have your own spouse taken from you tomorrow. You can lose your job. You can lose your health. And you could walk in frailty for the rest of your life. You can lose all of it. But if you have God, you have everything. Do you believe that? It's not to say it's hard. That's not to say, verse 1, there's not seasons of distress. But in those seasons do you go to God and do you find that he's infinitely and indestructibly satisfying and that he's so much better as giver than any of the gifts that he could give you or in his wisdom that he takes away. Do you believe that? That God is that good. That God is that satisfying. That he is enough for you today. In full, that in christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him <laughs> that's that's crazy you get it in christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily all the god is all of his eternal infinite all satisfying self-sufficient reality is in Christ, and you've been filled in Christ. Insofar as Christ is lacking in nothing, you, believer, are lacking in nothing because you've been filled in the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's crazy. That's what you have in Christ. Do you believe that? So why do we cobble after things that rust can destroy and thieves can steal? Why do we grow anxious when we don't have? Why do we grow distressed when when earthly things are taken away from us? Why do we fear death itself when we have God? And that God is righteous and he is gracious and he has set apart the godly for himself and he hears us when when we call. Is that your God? That's David's God. And that's why in verse 8... He not only enjoys God, but he is able to rest in God. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The beauty of the grace of God in Christ is it takes you from waking up in the morning in distress to growing in confidence to confront your circumstances, even lying on your own bed when the law of God convicts you and confronts you, the grace of God causes you even through all of that to lie down and to sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the king of Israel. He has the highest walls. He has the most powerful weapons. He's got armies that have slain nations. And he says, you Alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. My security is not in my spouse. It's not in my money. It's not in my house. It's not in my health. My security is not in any of these things. My security is in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, This is our God. David says, I will not stay up all night in fear. I'm going to lie down. And I will not lie awake worrying. I will lie down and sleep because God's got me. I don't need to keep my eyes open for another minute, trying to be sovereign over my world, because God, who created all things, is able to keep it spinning, even when I completely shut down. I don't need to control everything. I can sleep. How are you sleeping these days? Are you trusting in the Lord? Let's pray.